Wind and Tide. Hello and welcome to Family 360. A podcast of conversations exploring life together. Parenting and all the ways we are family to each other. I'm Rachel Cram, educator and founding director of Wind and Tide Education Community. I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios. And together, we're the hosts of Family 360, interviewing specialists, artists, and storytellers. And now for this week's episode. This is the second in our Now Playing in a Person Near You series. The first was episode 26 on ADHD. Today's episode is called Autism, Now Playing in a Person Near You. There are many ways to approach this important conversation, and this episode explores a story of autism discovered in adulthood. Kim Zaglinski is a mother, spoken word artist, actor, and school counselor. She's also on the autism spectrum, a diagnosis she discovered in her 40s. In this interview, Kim shares her story, one that is common to many adults who remain undiagnosed throughout childhood and adolescence. Yeah, we gave careful consideration to how we wanted to come at this topic. Mm. Conversations about discovering spaces on spectrums are important. And they require sensitivity and wisdom. Mm -hmm. Which is why we decided to step into this topic with someone who's living it. Exactly. Through Kim's work as a school counselor, she's a dedicated advocate for children on the spectrum who may struggle to find their footing in school and their footing in themselves. Pretending to be normal in a world where you don't fit takes its toll over time, says Kim, Mm. which is why she's become an encouraging voice for accepting diversity, divergence, and disability as identities of pride. We hope you find this an enlightening conversation Mm -hmm. with Kim Zaglinski. Kim, thank you so much for meeting with us today. You're in your studio, I'm in mine, and it's fun to have a conversation like this. Zoom, zoom, zoom. (laughs) Exactly. We're used to that at this point in our lives. So the mission of Family 360 is exploring life together, and we host guests from a wide range of backgrounds, specialists, artists, and storytellers. You, Kim, Mm -hmm. could come at today's conversation from any of those angles because you do have specialization in today's topic, and you are also an artist. But Mm -hmm. I'd love to explore your story first. Yeah. So just before we totally jump in... Mm -hmm. um. Still around terminology, I I just don't want to be offensive in how I use terminology. Let that go, because someone listening will be offended no matter what we use. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's the way of it, is it? Yes. That's just the way of it. (laughs) Okay. So when you refer to yourself, like, do you say I... I I'll, I'll say I'm on the spectrum, or I'll say I'm autistic. Okay. I will go with that then. Thank you. Yeah. Let's jump in with the question that I typically use at the beginning of interviews. It's a question that goes back into who you've been as a child. And I think that's just a great way of, of getting to know you better. Sure. Okay. Aristotle stated, show me a child at seven and I will show you the adult. Kim, is there a story from your childhood that reflects the adult that you are today? My mom says I was born an adult, so there's that. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I I think in terms of the adult that I am today, I've always been kind of eccentric and quirky, and a lot of my best friends were older adults. So in school, my best friends were my teachers, Mm. and at home, 
my very best friend was next door and she was a card reading palmistry fortune telling woman in her 70s <laughs> who I think was Hungarian and uh, I remember um, my mom let me go off with her she would take me on the bus and we would just spend the mm. afternoon downtown and it was bizarre because I, I, I had to be under seven so I was pretty little I was pretty but little. But you were safe. You were I was safe. safe. Her, yeah, she was awesome. But she was mm. my best friend. She was a 70-year-old woman next door. Yeah. I, I also spent a lot of time with newcomers. And there was an immigrant couple who were the caretakers of the apartment block behind my back lane. So I would spend a lot of time on their front stoop. And then later in high school, a lot of my good friends were the kids that were in the English additional language program at school. Mm. Now, you used the adjective quirky. Mm -hmm. Did you see yourself as quirky? At the or time? Or that in retrospect? Probably in retrospect. I mean, I no. Mm -hmm. As a child, I was just me. Yeah. I was a drama kid in high school, so those were the quirky people in my high school peer group. We were the nerdy kids that were always in a rehearsal of some kind every lunch hour, every after school, often on weekends. In those days, the teachers could just, you know, make a deal with the custodian and get a key to the building. <laughs> you know? So we would spend so much time in the theater. And so that was kind of my world in high school. And so definitely a bit of a quirky existence there. How'd that work out? I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a chameleon, I think. I kind of bounced around a little bit. But sports came because I really wanted a school jacket. <laughs> I, oh, and I didn't enough. have a lot of athletic abilities. So I, I became the team manager in grade seven or eight, something like that. And uh, so that was your athletic that side. That was my athletic side. That, that part. And then I joined the track team and I was injured all the time. So I spent all of my track practices on the exercise bike watching everyone else run. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first introduction to you, Kim, was as a spoken word actor in a piece you did for the Fringe Festival, your monologue about self discovery. Mm -hmm. And one of your adult discoveries is that you're on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Would autism, would that diagnosis have been available when you were a child? I think it made it into the Diagnostic Statistical Manual as its own diagnosis in 1980 under the DSM-3. So I would have been 10. And you weren't actually diagnosed with autism till you were in your 40s. I was 43. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So can you describe your journey? Because there's a lot of people who have wrestled with life feeling almost like they're pretending to be somebody that they're not. And then in older life, find out that they're on the autism spectrum mm -hmm. and everything kind of lands for them. I'm wondering if you can share how that's played out for you. Mm -hmm. Can you even start with the time period of settling into adult life? How are you finding your place in the world at that point in time? Yeah. So in high school, it, it didn't seem to be an issue. It didn't feel like I was that much of an oddball in the high school setting. I came from a fairly traditional approach to schooling. Which means what? I, I had my own desk. I had very concrete tasks that I had to complete, and I completed them. And, you know, and they were either right or they were wrong. There wasn't a lot of open-endedness. In university, 
I went into the Bachelor of Education program straight from high school. So I was I was young and super excited about teaching and learning and already kind of in my element in that way. I had babysat and I mentioned that I was always friends with seniors, but my other best friends were little kids. So I was always immersed in the world of young children. I took a practicum course in high school where I was placed in a kindergarten classroom And that was a really natural role for me. So going into the Faculty of Education seemed flawless, right? Until I hit a bit of a social wall where I realized I didn't have a lot of friends. And my boyfriend at the time, I had been with for three years and that relationship ended. And I just went into this crisis of what do I do now? It felt like the whole world had been ripped out from under me. I didn't feel like I had an identity. I failed courses. It took me an extra year to finish my four-year degree because I had this non-year. Everything just fell apart for me. A non-year, Kim. Can you describe that a little further? I stopped being able to multitask. I stopped being able to keep so many balls in the air. I just felt like maybe I had taken on too much or maybe I was depressed because of the boyfriend thing. But I think in hindsight, it was more than that. It was me not actually knowing my own identity yet. It was me pouring so much of myself into the identity of this guy's girlfriend or the identity of a high-achieving student. And maybe that was an example of autistic shutdown. And in hindsight, maybe that's what that was. Mm. You're talking about not knowing your own identity. I think, especially as we go into our teen years and even our 20s, we're trying to figure out that question of who am I? Mm-hmm. We're all trying to figure that out. I realize this is subjective, but how much more difficult is that for someone who is undiagnosed with autism to address that question? Well, in my case, and, I, and I've and i heard this from others, there is this phenomenon of the social chameleon and you are being like the people you are with more than you are being yourself. Why is that? It's part of the concept of masking and trying to fit in and trying to figure out your social world. It's almost like a sociological study. It's like Jane Goodall with her chimps. You know, you're you're studying the people. You're trying to figure out what is this? What is facial expression? What is body language? What is tone of voice? What is this world of social communication and all of the nuances that go with social communication? You and, said Jane Goodall. Like, Is it almost like yeah. you're studying a different species? It's kind of like studying a species. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. It also helps you, in my case, the social chameleonism helped me not to go to the same well too often to drink. Because you'd shift to a new setting to try on new personas? Yes. How did that shifting help you? I didn't tire anybody out. I didn't overwhelm as many people. I stayed people's friends because I didn't spend too long in any one place. Mm. I was really trying on roles. Mm, That is hard. It is. It's about normalizing. Well, And what does that kind of pressure to normalize do to a child's or an adult's identity and mental health? I I think it it just takes its toll over time. It's hard to pretend to be normal Mm. and to be in a world that you don't fit well into. Mm. That's a heavy weight to carry. Yeah.
So what started to be an indicator to you that there was maybe something more that you could explore with who well, you were? I mean, definitely early career was a big one. I, I graduated and there weren't really a lot of jobs in the city. Some of my cohort managed to get jobs in places where they student taught. I was quite surprised I didn't. And I ended up going up north and teaching in a small community in northern Manitoba. And the principal there had a history with my family. He had been a resource teacher in the elementary school where my mom was an educational assistant serving his resource um, caseload. And so it felt like it was going to be a really good fit. It felt like it was going to be a really good fit. And in hindsight, this is something my mother orchestrated. So, mm. yes, mothers do a lot of work for kids on the spectrum, whether or not they know they're on the spectrum. There's a trying to support, trying to support, trying to support and trying yeah. to orchestrate that success and, and mm -hmm. working in the background to make sure these pieces are in place. And so she did that. And I ended up going up north and teaching in this small community and I felt comfortable with my administrator because he knew me when and he knew my mother and I think because there was a history there he was willing to invest in me and so things really came to a head after that very first term position was coming to a close in December and a new position was coming up in a different classroom but the same school and he called me into his office and I thought it was to sign on the dotted line and offer me the next position. Mm -hmm. And he said, what the heck are you trying to prove? Mm -hmm. And I went, what? And he said, you have alienated yourself on this staff. You have made a mm -hmm. very terrible first impression with all of your colleagues. And, oh, Kim. and <laughs> we need to fix this or you can't keep working here. Did you have any idea what he was talking no, about? No, I was 23 years old. I thought I was this great teacher. I was super excited about what I had come out of university learning. I I was a product of the um, whole language thrust in early years education at the time. And I was very excited about child-centered learning. And I didn't realize my colleagues were seeing that as a criticism of their teaching styles when I would share things that I was excited about. Or when my bulletin boards were bare and an educational assistant came in and said, how come you haven't covered your bulletin boards yet? Mm -hmm. I, I looked around, I realized, oh, every single bulletin board in this building is all covered with colored paper and beautiful borders that I had neglected to order for myself. And here I am in my first classroom and it looked like a dog's breakfast because <laughs> I hadn't had any artwork to put up yet. <laughs> so so looking back with the value of hindsight, what do you think your administrator was trying to tell you? What was he seeing? Well, I spoke to him years later after my diagnosis and I said, thank you for putting me through charm school. You set me up for success with colleagues in a work place. And he said, well, don't mention it, but it was the hardest lens I had ever turned on myself. We looked at things like, well, first of all, the big blanket question, how do I see myself versus how do others see me? So he helped me with perspective taking. And it's it's perspective taking that I use all the time in my position as a school counselor and as a teacher. And as a parent, I'm always helping kids who are narrowly focused on their point of view to see other points of view. That's the irony is through my mm. own teaching, through my parenting, 
through my further studies, I'm growing as a person myself and I'm learning mm -hmm. about all of these social skills that I was lacking. So he laid these out. He for laid you. these out. I had to look at tone of voice. That's still hard. Volume, tone, vocal modulation is, is a big issue with people on the spectrum, and it certainly is with me. I had to look at my facial expressions and trying to read my own face and the reaction I was putting on my face. Mm -hmm. I would react to the person in my space or the person interrupting my class flow before I actually gave the person a chance to speak and tell mm -hmm. me why they were there. He taught me about having a neutral, non-reactive pause and showing that in my body language and on my face before listening and then reacting. So he really took the time yeah. to break it down into categories mm -hmm. and share it back with you. You use the term charm school, which when you mentioned that, I thought you were using that sarcastically. But you actually, it sounds like you appreciated yeah. that he took the time to explain to you what was not working. And did that come as a surprise to you? It did. It did. I don't know why it did. If I really think about it, I probably had those kinds of issues all the way through school and especially with peers. But I always had teachers who, like especially my drama teacher, for example, he would know when something was derailing, maybe anxiety levels were really high. We were getting to showtime. We were taking tone with each other. And he would just say, OK, what the heck's going on here? And and get things back on track. So I don't know if that was him seeing my autistic traits when under stress and needing to be toned down. Maybe that's what he was seeing. Was there any mention of the word autism at that point? No, not at all. No, yeah. not at all. So your principal gave you this feedback. Yeah. And as you were giving me that list, it seemed like a lot of feedback. Yeah. Were you able to incorporate that? I was. I was. However, hmm. it's not enough to undo a first impression in a lot of settings. Hmm. You need a lot of grace from a lot of people to undo a poor first impression. And so mm -hmm. I have gone from job to job to job. I have done so many things since I first graduated. I had never before this present position where I am an elementary school counselor, I had never been anywhere longer than two years. Hmm. What was the big eye opener for you that there was something more you needed to look into? That came through my journey of parenting Aiden. Like Aiden. Is Aiden your first child? Aiden's our first, yeah. So, what was there in Aiden that you saw in yourself? What was he like as a child? Aiden is 19 now. And all parents think their kids are special. But as a baby, he was pretty remarkable. He was three weeks old and he was tuning into things in books and making little vocalizations and zeroing in on stuff. I remember we had this little book and we would stand the book beside him when we were changing him or whatever. And he would go, oh, oh. Mm. And he was like three weeks old. So at three weeks old, did you feel like you were really rocking it as a mom? Like, did you feel like you had it? 
Totally. Three weeks? Yeah, we had it. No, I was not rocking it as a mom at all. From the very first moment he was born, I felt disconnected from him. Maybe I was just completely sensory overwhelmed and recovering from the sensory experience of giving birth. This is all in hindsight. Again, I don't have a framework at the time that this is this is autism. And mm. I was in shutdown mode. I was completely turned off and trying to recover from whatever that was. And it was more than how my body felt. It was like being out of my body and watching myself on the bed try to regroup and be ready to face any kind of sensory input. Mm. So... From day one, my husband had to come and get me and say, it's time to go see our baby. And then I was able to go, okay, let's do this next thing, right? Which must have come as a surprise to you because you described at the beginning how much you love being around little kids. I, I thought I was going to be like this easy, automatic mom. Like, it felt like the only thing I ever wanted was to be a wife and mom, you know? And once I was one, it was the weirdest disconnect. It was hard. And it was this assault on my sensory system. I was a very shut down individual. I was extremely volatile, angry, 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 yelling, crying, really not in charge of my emotions. So in hindsight, was that an autistic meltdown? Probably lots of them over and over and over again. It was it was tough. And Aiden was remarkable and Dave was remarkable with Aiden. And so mm. between Dave and my mother, they took care of Aiden a lot of that time. My mom would come in every day and bathe him and rock him and feed him. And mm -hmm. Well, one of the difficulties of masked autism or being undiagnosed mm -hmm. or overlooked as somebody with autism is that it makes it hard to know how to move forward if you're interpreting what a situation like you're just describing now as postpartum mm -hmm. when actually it could be a social shutdown. Yeah. And and I just want to I just want to clarify like masking masking is a coping skill. It's a coping mechanism. Many people on the spectrum both diagnosed or undiagnosed mask well. What does masking mean? And masking is faking it. Masking is passing as neurotypical, what society deems to be normal functioning. And in the autism community, we use NT or neurotypical to describe non-autistic individuals. And so I was really good at masking. But where do you unmask? You unmask at home where it's safe to have your little hissy fit or your meltdown or whatever or your shutdown. And so when that mask that you work so hard at keeping on in your day to day comes off, unfortunately, that also means very often that you're bringing your worst self home to the people you love. <laughs> you know. Well, I would imagine... It's an exhausted self. Yeah. 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 It's an exhausted because, self. Because, yeah. It's pretty overwhelming. Yeah. So you had this amazing three-week-old child mm -hmm. in Aiden. Mm -hmm. He was stunning you, even though you did not feel you were measuring up as the mom you thought you were going to be. So where did things go from there with Aiden? He was a really amazing little kid. I mean, aside from the fact that he hardly ever slept and needed to be held and rocked constantly... He was incredible. Like by age one, oh my goodness, he had this little wooden alphabet puzzle 
and he could name every letter. He could recite stories. He read really young, but there was something off about his sensory overwhelm and his hypersensitivity to things. Like he was really almost like a superpower. He was really able to sense things like thunderstorms were coming. Or he would scream and scream in the back seat, and we didn't realize that what he was screaming about was the sun in his eyes. It was really painful for him. Did you attribute that to a sensory issue for him? Mm, not yet. I mean, we made accommodations naturally because nobody wants their kid to scream. So we figured out, oh, maybe if we put sunglasses on him when he's in the back seat, this will help him. And it, it did. It did help him. But but socially, he would melt down like crazy if anyone was in his space. I would bring him to a party and he couldn't be in the loud area where all the adults were. He wanted that one-on-one -on -one adult attention all the time and he was insatiable. So what would he be doing that, that made you feel that you could not override oh, a two-year-old? His tantrums were unlike any two-year-olds I had ever dealt with. Describe them. They were the biggest, biggest, loudest, uh, oh, screaming, blue, unable to catch his breath. And they would last a really, really long time. And he was so inconsolable. If anything happened, that would derail his expectation of whatever was going to happen. Mm. And how often did that happen? Mm, it was, I don't know. I don't know how often. It's all a blur when you're in it. Definitely weekly. Yeah. Well, and that's stressful for any parent. What did you wonder about at that point in time? Well, he had started some kinder music stuff. We belonged to a church, and anytime there is music, it was quite acceptable for kids to go up and dance in this particular church community. And he would just spin in circles and spin in circles as long as music was playing. Mm. So that was one of the traits that I was reading about that could be a spectrum trait. And my mom was an educational assistant in a behavior support program at the time. And she said to me, I think Aiden might be on the spectrum. And I said, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad you think so, too. <laughs> we, instead of having this conversation of denial, it was just, oh, I'm so glad someone else is seeing this. And Describe that for me. What's the relief in that? Oh, Because I think some people can listen to that and feel very insulted that somebody would think their child was on a spectrum. Why was that a relief to it you? It was a relief to me because I was thinking this way, and I knew that going forward he was going to probably need supports in a larger group setting if he needed the kind of one-on-one -on -one support I was providing him in small group settings, he was in his own world. You could tell even then that he was different from the other kids. So Aiden was diagnosed with autism. Eventually. As your mom had suspected. Mm -hmm. What did that prompt in you and who you started to see yourself to be? How was that a little bit of an eye-opening experience for you? Well, in the readings that I was doing and in the conferences I was attending, I thought I was just gathering information about students I would be teaching or about raising Aiden, who I suspected was on the autism spectrum. And so I went to a few conferences and in, in a looking to get help for Aiden, looking to get help for Aiden, just hungry for the information. In hindsight, it was my autistic special interest to be interested in autism. <laughs> you know? Well, is that and, a characteristic of autism that you tend to have a special interest? Yeah, I mean, stereotypically 
basically people, you know, used to call it savantism or they used to use that archaic term idiot savant years and years ago, right? So it's mm. kind of that same thing, though. You have a special interest and that special interest mm. may be a healthy one. And it may be an unhealthy perseveration where it's a loop and you just can't get off of that loop, right? So for mm. me, my... For you, it's gathering for information. For me, it was gathering information about autism at the mm. time. Anyway, that's what mm. I was into. And I'm still pretty into that. I would say that's pretty common for people on the spectrum to want to learn more about other people on the spectrum because you're excited. Yeah, you're, that makes sense. You've got a framework yeah. finally, right? Yeah. So you did decide to pursue going for a diagnosis. Yes. And part of, part of why is because... I had never been anywhere longer than two years, so I moved around a lot. Term position, never offered a permanent, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when I had Aiden and Jude, I went back to work as a reading recovery specialist. And I really thrived in that one-on-one -on -one environment. That was insight into myself and my functioning. So I wanted to pursue other areas where I could continue to specialize. So I knew that I wanted to go back to university I suspected I was autistic myself, and I decided to pursue the process of diagnosis because I had heard about this cool thing called academic accommodations. And I knew that there was no way, unless I stopped everything else, that I was going to be able to be a student. So you had a practical reason for it. I had a practical it. reason for it. It's very complicated, it's very isn't complex. it? It's very complex. Because there's no blood test for autism. No, there's no blood You're... test for autism. But, you know, I went to two conferences that were specific to women on the spectrum. I also attended one by the author of Pretending to be Normal, Leanne Holiday-Willie, and she was diagnosed late in life too after her daughter was diagnosed. And I went up to Leanne. That's another thing that happens at conferences. When you are on the spectrum, you're the first one in line to talk to the speaker because you just think you're out for coffee and they're talking to you. It doesn't matter that there's a room of 500 people. Yeah. So I Well, I got you to talk so to her. So I went up to talk to Leanne Holiday Willie and she greeted me with, hey, Aspie, which is short for Asperger's. And that was one of the ways she identified herself at the time. And she saw me. She saw me. She saw it she in saw you. She saw it in me. It's like, it's, mm -hmm. like, it's like, it's mm like -hmm. when you know what you're looking for, it's like having that a brand new car and everyone's got the same make and model on the road. You just kind of know what you're looking for and you see it in people. And some of it is bias, but a lot of it is insight. And mm -hmm. just that, hey, mm -hmm. you, I know you, I see you, I recognize you. And I was, I was motivated to pursue a diagnosis. I had luckily a, a medical plan and was able to fly to Toronto. And by the end of this thorough assessment... You had a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to Family 360. Today we're with Kim Zaglinski as she shares the story of discovering her place on the autism spectrum. Our next episode is with Australian music therapist Alison Davies, whose decades of study and work offer wonderful insight and instruction for a powerful practice she calls brain care. And now back to our conversation with Kim as she describes discoveries that unveil after a diagnosis. Hmm. What does having a diagnosis do for you, Kim? How does that change the relationships that you have with people like like your husband, for example, like mm -hmm. with Dave? I I think I think it just gives a framework. So 
If I'm having what seems to be an unreasonably angry reaction to something, I can say, it's not personal. This is just me melting down. I, I need a break, you know, or I need some recharge time. I don't like to think of myself as needing support, but I mean, I do. I have a lot of support. So for Dave, when you're getting upset and angry, what has it changed in Dave? Like, do you see a change in how you relate to each other with having the diagnosis? Does it give him a greater understanding, more patience, more grace? He's kind of like having an in-house educational assistant. He, he's he's an outside lens that can mm-hmm. feed back to me. Um he steps up and just takes care of a lot of that executive functioning stuff. Because the executive functioning is tricky it, for especially you. Especially in the morning. Like, I can't even see my way to get off my phone and make my morning coffee. And then suddenly I'm not dressed and I'm late for work and I haven't eaten yet. And all of that stuff, Dave just takes care of first thing in the day for me when he's home. Because for you, it's not a matter of just pull up your socks and do it. No, I'm in slow motion. I can't do it by myself. But looking back, I was like that when I lived alone in my own apartment and didn't have anybody taking care of me. That's how I looked. That's how I functioned. And then finally it'd be two o'clock and I'd go, I haven't eaten yet today. I should eat something. Oh, I need to go to the grocery store. Everything happened between 2 p.m. and 8 (laughs) p.m. That was my day. So when you're in a relationship with somebody and when you're parenting together and raising children, obviously autism can create some extra levels of complication in that. Mm -hmm. Have you and Dave taken ongoing education in how to support one another? I've noticed a book on his shelf about autism in the spouse or something or marriage and autism. I don't know the book title, but he's definitely done his own research our listeners may want that yeah. title. <laughs> I'll have to ask him the title. He's definitely done his own research. And there's so much information online and reading material that particular to women on the spectrum. And it just gives such a framework for how to support people. You talked about the administrator that you had when you went up north mm-hmm. and how he put you through what you called charm school. When you started with a new administrator, did you tell that new administrator about your diagnosis right from the beginning? I do, and I have done, and that's a very and how well, does it's that a very help? Personal choice, I want to say. Some people choose to disclose, and some people don't. People say it's an invisible disability. I don't know how invisible it is, really, because when things are under stress as they often are in a school setting, you know, you might not behave at your best in the staff room, for example. You might choose to eat your lunch in your office. You might choose to not participate in the social life of your school. And that's self-preservation. That's your way of recharging, right? And all of that stuff might be seen as, oh, they don't want to be here. Oh, they don't want to be part of our staff. Oh, they're not a team player. And so in my case, I chose to disclose right from the get-go Especially, I think, because I was going into the role of school counselor, when I was interviewing, I chose to disclose that I am on the spectrum. And I see part of the role of the school counselor in the elementary setting to help kids with their social world and the social emotional wellness of elementary kids. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a plethora of 
undiagnosed quirky children all coming through the counselor's door or the resource teacher's door or having meltdowns over things over and over again with their peer group at recess time and the heartbreak that comes with that. Every elementary school needs an elementary school counselor who knows about the spectrum. Because kids don't come mm. with a diagnosis anymore, necessarily yeah. at all. But you still have to deal with making their world okay and making them feel okay in their world. Well, and now we know that about 1 in 80 children are on the autism spectrum. Is that the number now? <laughs> yeah, what do you think it oh, is? Oh, I don't know. What do you I think it is? I think it's more than that. And that would be diagnosed, right? Yeah. So, so of course, in a school, you're going to have children that are really struggling. Yeah. But can I just back up to say with your administrator, when you've told your administrator that you have autism, or do you say I have autism or do you say I'm autistic? I think I say I'm on the spectrum. On yeah. the spectrum. You you were mentioning what charm school put you through, that you were being told about your facial expressions, your eye contact, your body language. My guess would be that that still is who you are. Mm -hmm. So does that give your administrators now the ability to understand you differently and your coworkers to to realize that they should not interpret that as your disinterest or can they see past that to the compassion, the warmth, the care that you have, the joy that you have in your job? I think my current administrator sure can, but it really depends on the administrator, right? Mm. I have found a good fit and this person is able to support me and honor the psychological accommodations that I come with that say nature of work and scheduling need to be considered. My principal also honors the accommodations I have on paper and understands that I might not do well in a, on certain committees or I might not do well in a staff meeting, but she will pull me into her office and it's more of a need to know basis and she will dispense to me the information I need in order to function optimally in my role. If I know the inner workings of the entire machine, I'm down a rabbit hole and I'm anxious and I'm, I'm trying to solve problems that aren't mine to solve. And you need people to catch you when that starts to happen. Yes, very much so. Hmm. Kim, you began our conversation talking about ND, which is neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. There's an understanding now that we are all neurodiverse, but mm -hmm. that some people are neurodivergent. And I think that's an even broader category than autism. Is that correct? Yeah. You can think of it as an umbrella term that catches a whole plethora of diagnoses. There's a lot of intersectionality, no matter what your label is, if you are neurodivergent, if you are seen as other than neurotypical. Mm. Kim, what would be categories or definitions that fall under neurodivergent? And then how, how do they play out in schools or in society? Well, the way I see it and the way I make sense of it is we're all neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. We all perceive our worlds differently. There is a chunk in the middle. If you think of it as a bell curve, there's a chunk in the middle of the bell curve because this is how our society and our systems are set up. And they seem to be just fine. And they're what some people will call the norm. Because that's where most people lie in that section of the bell curve. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you've got your middle section of the bell curve, and then you have your exceptionalities on the outer edges of the bell curve. And that's where neurodivergence comes in. So you might see ND, and it could stand for neurodiverse, neurodiversity, or neurodivergent. And autism is an example of neurodivergence. 
different from the norm. But there's a whole group of, I call them our neuro cousins. So kids in my counseling practice, some are diagnosed, some are not. And maybe this is my bias, but what I see as autism traits, kids often have on paper ADHD as their official diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But they share traits. And the strategies are the same, and they're not getting an educational assistant in most situations anyway, so let's just learn to deal with these beautiful human beings mm -hmm. and help them to feel connected and have role and purpose and friends and help them to thrive in their school settings. So there's definitely intersectionality between autism and ADHD. I have both diagnoses, actually. I have ADHD and autism spectrum disorder, and sometimes I've tried ADHD meds and they have helped me get through those very, very busy times. I've heard of a lot of people who say they've been misdiagnosed in their teens or young adults as having bipolar disorder. That makes sense because when you're in an autistic crisis, you might come to your psych services and you're not optimally functioning. You're having a mental health crisis. So it, it doesn't surprise me that some people might first come away with a diagnosis of a mood disorder and then tease out through therapy and a psychologist, psychiatrist who knows what they're looking at in adults and goes, oh, this is autism, right? It's pretty common. And is that because they just haven't had the supports they need in place? It could be that they've been very unsupported, yeah. And so this is part of why a diagnosis is important. It helps with the supports and it helps with a framework so that you can cultivate a life and a life's rhythm that embeds the supports into your lifestyle. You're talking about the bell curve, the norm, and the outer edges of the norm. And on those outer edges, terms like disorder and disability are often applied. Those terms suggest a need for a recovery or cure. Mm. How does that play out in your head? Mm -mm. Under the social model, you're not looking for recovery or cure. You're looking for acceptance. Mm. Too many people frame autism as something that needs to be cured. And I am not negating the various expressions of autism that can be better supported. I'm not negating the real struggle that some families and individuals are experiencing. Please don't get me wrong there. But I think this isn't about curative or therapeutic approaches so much as it is about accepting diversity, mm -hmm. accepting divergence. Mm -hmm. And under the social model of disability, disability is an identity to be proud of. This is autistic pride coming from me. There's a lot of intersectionality and parallels coming out of what's collectively known as gay pride in disability pride movements. And I really recommend that people look at disability not as something to be fixed, but just as human variation, human expression. These are all the, the beautiful colors of our mm. human existence. Mm. Well said, Kim. Thank you. Can I ask, from your perspective, do you see progress with acceptance and inclusion? Mm. Well, you're talking to a theater artist right now, and there's not a lot of representation yet. 
there are roles created or written for disabled characters, for sure, but those characters aren't necessarily played by disabled actors. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a ways to go. There's definitely some efforts. There's disability casting statements, for example. There's disability and diversity hiring practices, at least on paper. I don't know what it's like in action yet, but, okay, let's use this as an example. Why would someone who uses a wheelchair only have to play a character who uses a wheelchair? Why can't that person play a lawyer or a teacher? The fact that they happen to be using a wheelchair is completely insignificant. It's just a matter of upping the visibility that these are all people in our society. Mm. This is about inclusion. Well, and it really would help if it was reflected like that in the media. And we're such a long way from that point, that kind of inclusion, which is isolating. Mm -hmm. So maybe I, I can ask you, this is a last question, Kim. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I feel like I might fall onto the spectrum because I have so often felt in life that I don't fit. I see people around me as a different species. I sense that I don't belong. Mm -hmm. What would be a suggestion that you'd offer? What would be a hope that you'd offer? Hmm. There's a lot of community out there, first of all. So seek out your community based on your hunches. Don't wait for official confirmation. Don't wait for official diagnoses. We live in this world of labels and the medicalized model of disability. And the autism community is trying so hard to shift that to what's called the social model of disability. And if everyone were supported and lived in a society where everyone just got what they needed, it wouldn't necessarily be a disability, right? Mm. And you, you can accept that from the point of view of physical disabilities. We all know that architecture needs modifications to design in order for it to be accessible. Yeah, wheelchair ramps, and yeah. Right. Like, we don't think of that necessarily in terms of supporting this huge plethora of other disabilities that may be less visible, mm. right? We can't wait for the system to have enough money or have enough supports or whatever it is, to slap a label on a kid before we do something for that kid. Mm. If you are a teacher, if you are a parent, and you see that your kid has some support needs, support those mm. needs. You have to be a bit of, of, a, of a detective to figure out how to support those needs. But there's community everywhere. Like, tell your stories. Go on some online forums. Read some books. Attend conferences. Pick up some podcasts such as this one. Learn your story, tell your story, and go at it from the level of kindness and humanity. And we all need a little bit of support sometimes. And under the social model of disability, we don't have to wait for someone medical to slap a label on us in order to have our needs met. We just have to know what those needs are, express them, and have them respected. Okay, I think we'll close with that. Kim, I thank you so much for your time today, for the thought that you have poured into this conversation and for your heart to really help other people move into the freedom that I think you're experiencing now in your life. Thank you.
I found that a very fascinating conversation <laughs> with Kim. Was. And I'm feeling very attached to her. Oh. <laughs> she has a great story. We taped this conversation with Kim several months ago, waiting for the right time to release. Yeah. And then last week we interviewed a music therapist in Australia who we discovered has a story very similar to Kim's. Yeah, that's not the focus of her interview. No. But she too has discovered on the autism spectrum as an adult after the diagnosis of her young daughter. And we thought we'd put those two interviews out back to back. Yeah, because Kim's story gives a great backdrop to the work of our next guest, Alison Davies, who now mentors and teaches thousands of children and adults on the spectrum on brain care. Particularly through music. Yeah, brain care is a whole realm of awareness that's emerging and it's fascinating. And stories like Kim's push that mm -hmm. envelope for research and understanding because we are all so neurodiverse. As Kim explained so well. And life together is complicated. And, but it doesn't need to be lonely. No, and that's why we need to share our stories, like Kim did. Yes. So thank you, Kim. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Rate the show, leave a comment, and tell a friend. Each Family 360 episode ends with music inspired by the words of our guest. You heard bits and pieces of this music during this interview. Here's the song we're warmly calling Kimsey. And you can find it in our resource section for every episode or wherever you stream music.
I'm Rachel Cram. I'm Roy Salmon, and thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360. We share quotes and links from all our guests on Family 360 on our website, Facebook, and Instagram. Join us. We'd love to continue the conversation with you.